Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A big thank you to Neon, our favorite New Zealand streaming service, for making this episode of Culture Vulture happen. Kia ora everybody. Kia ora. And welcome to another lockdown edition of Culture Vulture. We are so excited. Actually, I am so excited to talk about this TV show today. I know. We're talking about The White Lotus, which me and Liv watched at the very start of lockdown. And and Liv, okay, when you were watching it, or like straight after watching it, what did you think? Oh, it's just so funny because we thought that this show would last us the lockdown. I know. But- <laughs> It was what, we like eight episodes? Totally mistaken. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we sort of boosted through this show. It was great. Um, but at the time, I thought it was good. Mm. Like, I definitely enjoyed it. I think I would have struggled to keep watching it if we weren't watching it together. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. But as soon as it was over, I was like, holy fuck, that was incredible. I know. It's a, it's, it's a great slow burner, like in retrospect... And, and right now, doing the research for it, it's fucking amazing. But yes. when it finished, I was like, what the fuck have I just watched? How has this bettered me as a person? And now I'm like, oh my god, like, white privilege yeah. everywhere. The wellness industry, fuck it. <laughs> Absolutely, it's like changed my outlook on life. I and know. I just feel like this would have been the perfect sort of year 13 essay TV show to, to write about. And we're so lucky that we sort of get to talk Do about it. it it's part of our job totally so, so much to unpack no there's too much to unpack that i'm like bursting with anticipation right now to get into it so for anyone that hasn't seen the white lotus i would probably recommend maybe going and watching it and then coming and listening to this episode because spoiler alert oh the whole thing is a spoiler absolutely one huge spoiler please do go and watch it would absolutely recommend it's all on neon like it's so good it's so fast and it's just an amazing show it is like do push through because the first episode like it leaves you feeling all sort of weird ways and you don't really know why but hopefully this is why Lucy and I are here today to sort of unpack those strange feelings that it sort of bubbles up inside of you. Yes. So essentially, The White Lotus is a tragic comedy, which Ooh. I'd not heard of before, niche but it was genre. No, niche genre. <laughs> but it was in a lot of the think pieces to which there are some amazing ones mm-hmm. out there. And and just a bit of a um, disclaimer, I feel like a lot of my opinions are piggybacking on a lot of the smart people I've been reading. So I can't even claim, I know how I feel, but a lot of the opinions that I'm forming, I'm not sure whether they're mine or whether I agree with the wonderful writers that have sort of come before us. Absolutely. Both I'm happy with, but I just thought we should put it out there in case you've heard some of this sort of before and you think like, what the fuck, Lucy, you did not come up with that. I know. (laughs) There are many, many smart people out there that have thought things before me or Liv. I agree with what Lucy said about, you know, taking the opinions of others. But I think it's just like reiterating what you have thought, backing what you maybe felt, but you didn't have the words for at the time of watching it. I mean, that's their jobs, I guess, writers. Words. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that? So basically, The White Lotus follows the storylines of a bunch of white privileged guests 
bar one, who we'll get into, um, staying at the White Lotus Resort in Hawaii. Now, the guests are all like adult babies or the children of adult babies, and they think the world revolves around them. And as director Mike White shows us throughout the series, the world does in fact revolve around them. And it doesn't look to be changing anytime soon, does it, love? Not at all. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this whole series is, it's supposed to be satirical. Mm. That's how, if you look on the HBO website, it says, you know, this is a satirical drama. And what's so scary to me is that it doesn't even feel that satirical. Like, Mm. it doesn't even feel that hyperbolized to the world that we are living in. Mm. I think at first in my notes, I was writing like, you know, this is a magnifying glass of society and racial inequality and an economical inequality. But then I was sort of like, actually, it's not even getting a magnifying glass. It's very blatant. Mm, and, and satire doesn't have to be a magnified or hyperbolized um, anything. So I think when they say satire, they genuinely just mean putting blatantly in front of you what's happening. Oh, okay. And you're seeing it as if it's like this big mystical show. But it's like, no, this is actually real life. Yeah. And you're laughing at it, but it's it's you. It's, it's you. the world. It's you. That's and that, the point. Yeah, we will get into this, but that was like the takeaway point, right? Hell it is yes. probably you. <laughs> it is probably us. So I thought the way we should sort of structure this episode is that first we're going to really briefly go into Mike White, the director, just for a bit of context for us and um, to see some of the other things that he's done. And then me and Liv will go through the whole show, storyline by storyline. So I'll do the whole family, the Mossbacher family who come to the island, and Liv will do all the other storylines that occur, which is going to be deep and it's going to be great. Yeah. And then we're going to just finish off with like our final takeaways and, and maybe what we've learned, if this is like an English essay, how this reflects on society. Oh, there's know? a lot of that in there, I tell you what. Yes, fuck yes. It is society. This this whole show, honestly, I I love it, but it makes me feel icky? like icky. Yeah. And it and so it should. So Mike White um wrote the screenplays for The School of Rock and Nacho Libre. He also acted in The School of Rock as um he was Ned Schneebly. Oh my god, he was Ned Schneebly! <laughs> well, see, I can't recall The School of Rock. Oh I my know god. I've seen it before, but... So Jack Black impersonates Ned Schneebly. And he was Ned Schneebly. I just made that. <laughs> and Lucy and I use the word Schneebly all, all the time. All the time. He was also big on um, Freaks and Geeks, which is like this small sort of cult show with James Franco in it. And he's a big reality TV buff. So he was actually on The Amazing Race and... Survivor. Oh, was he on The Amazing... I knew he was on Survivor. Didn't know he was on The Amazing Race. Yeah. I fucking loved that show as so, a Yeah, so he's obsessed with reality TV. And it's funny because The White Lotus kind of feels reality TV-ish in the way that it just follows the char- different characters doing their normal day-to-day things. Absolutely. It's relatively mundane in its subject matter. Mm. And yeah, and now you say yeah. it. It is very reality TV-like. I mean, without the... The interviews. Yes, I know. Yeah. It is, without making them self-reflect. Because, of course, as we learn to they find don't. out, they don't self-reflect. Yep. They're happy in their little bubble of white privilege. We'll get into that. So Mike White has quite strong connections to Hawaii. So he said that his family used to take like real budget sort of holidays to Hawaii when he was younger. And 
from then on, he often has spent like half his time there. And obviously, after creating the White Lotus, he was asked about this a lot. Mm. And so in an interview that I read with him, he said that he has read up and is fully like schooled, I guess, on um, the history of particularly the wounds of US imperialism on Hawaii, which I was happy to read because you'd have to be. To create a show like this, you'd have to know the history of your people taking over Hawaii, Absolutely. I think I would actually recommend anyone looking up the colonization of Hawaii. It's really interesting and there's a lot of sort of background to the show of Mm. this, a lot more deeper understanding of the storylines. Yeah. He said that as a kid, he loved loud nights at the hotels when hotel employees would put traditional, you know, the flower laos mm-hmm. on you. Um, but he thinks about those experiences very differently now because obviously it's what we saw in the White Lotus. It's the people whose land has been taken, then having to work in these resorts and, like, appropriate their own culture it's, to make money to keep living on their own land. It's so, so, so fucked up. And I think that it's crazy because, you know, we'll go on holiday or people will go on holiday, probably myself included, to get a snippet of that magical feeling that these mm. cultures really have. But the way that it's done and the way that the White Lotus shows that it's done is like us exploiting these cultures to make ourselves feel good. Yes. And then like putting ourselves above these people, even though it's the magic of their Their culture societies that we are trying to like pay for, but we're not even paying them properly. And the only reason we pay them is because often we've taken the land that they now can't afford to live on. Absolutely. So it's all just this cycle that's really unfair. And we feel like we have the right to it. I know. And we absolutely do not. Mm -mm. Um, One final thing on Mike White. He did say there's something about vacationing in other people's realities, which I think sums up the White Lotus really beautifully. And Mm. I just think... If you actually go and look into him, his intentions with this show are really good. He's a well-intentioned director. And it just it feels so funny to be analysing this as a non-expert, but as people that benefit from the white privilege that he's really overtly showing in the show. And I'm just really glad that we get to dive into it because... It does make you feel icky, but that means that you're uncomfortable and that means you will change. Hopefully, absolutely. And how ironic is it that his name's Mike White? I know. I've been seeing you smiling at me across the podcast, Mike, like wanting to say that. I was like, what's she about to say? It's like the least hot take ever. No. Like Mike White, the White Lotus. White White privilege. It it? is. It's too much. And we're on a mic. We're talking on a mic. (laughs) Oh, true. Very yeah, meta. Yeah, yeah. That's the hottest take of the whole pod. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Mike and Mike. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so let's start with the family mm-hmm. that comes to the White Lotus to escape and have a really lovely holiday. So this is the Moss Barker family. So we have Nicole, the mother, and tech CFO. We have her mm-hmm. husband, Mark. We have their porn-addicted 16-year-old son, Quinn. And their daughter, Olivia, who is Sydney Sweeney from Euphoria. And she's been described as a bitchy, performatively woke college sophomore. And I agree with that. I couldn't have written that any better, so I just took it. Yeah. Um, And she has brought along her friend, Paula. Now, we'll get into 
Paula, Olivia and Quinn, the children of the family, but I think we should start with the mum and dad. So we meet Mark with his giant nuts and he thinks he's got... What an opener. No, Were you so excited to say that? I was. If I was gleefully looking at you across the mark, I think you were returning that double I definitely was. Um, but in all seriousness, he was worried that he had testicular cancer because his dad died of it. But then he finds out that his dad actually died of AIDS, which throws him into a, dare I say, mildly homophobic tailspin. Not even mildly, oh, quite a homophobic quite homophobically tailspin. <laughs> and at, at the same time, he's desperately, he thinks he's going to die before he finds out that his dad didn't die of testicular cancer. So he's trying to reconnect with Quinn in any way that he can. He also nearly fucks the hotel manager, which I wish happened, as he's on this journey to like understand his dad better. Did you think it was going to happen? Yes, <laughs> and I actually wish it did. Yeah, same. I can't Good wait content. to talk about the hotel manager. Um, and, and he also sort of divulges a bit too much about his relationship with his wife and his sex life with his wife to Quinn. Quinn doesn't ask for that, and he just goes a bit far. And then we have Nicole, who, in the words of the New Yorker, complains that her hotel suite doesn't provide nice feng shui for her Zoom with China. She feels attacked by her daughter's mocking of her Hillary Clinton-style feminism. And she's insulted by Rachel, who you'll come to meet, who once wrote a profile of her insinuating that she had capitalized on the Me Too movement to climb the corporate ladder. So Nicole's interesting. The mum is interesting because she really does subscribe to that classic girl boss old type of feminism that's kind of exclusionary like I can see it being trans exclusionary and exclusionary of women of color it's that classic like lift woman up on the corporate ladder type of feminism that's very straight and narrow I feel like it was the feminism that we were brought Brought up up on yeah like we were in the era at school where it was like, yes, you can be a CEO. Yes, yes. you can like... CEO. Yes. Like it, break the glass ceiling. Absolutely. But only if you're a white sort of already middle class woman. Yes. And we sort of learnt, I feel like, that feminism is so much more than that. It's very intersectional. You know, trans women are women. And, and you to be a feminist, you must recognise that, which the mum in the show does not. For sure. Like, I think this sort of idea of feminism that she really really sort of encapsulates is one where you're kind of disregarding your entire other privilege Mm. you're sort of like because Mm -hmm. I'm a woman I have the right to sort of like how do I say like it's like amazing because you're a woman that's your marginalized card yeah that's how it used that's how the mum comes across yes so like because she's a woman it was the one piece of marginalization that she could relate to but it was like enough because we didn't understand enough about intersectionality Mm. and things like that that she could play on that too heavily Mm -hmm. and I feel like that again is a world that we were brought into like as a kid I felt like that my feminism card like trumped everything else and it doesn't at all I just like didn't understand enough about it hell yes and and we were lucky that we sort of grew up just in time, just in the right yeah. time to flip that over to like learn to the proper way. Yeah, to unlearn and learn. But this mum in the show certainly didn't. Now she at one point says, 
I don't think you appreciate how tough things are for kids like Quinn right now. He is a straight white young man and nobody has any sympathy for them right now. And then Paula, who's the only person of colour that we see staying at the White Lotus, she's Olivia, the daughter's best friend, she says, maybe it's impossible to hire straight white male candidates these days because up until now, they're the only people that you've ever hired. And then Nicole goes, the mum. I'm just saying, I understand how guys like Quinn can feel a little alienated from the culture right now. It's just so interesting because people say this shit all the time. Yes. I I can imagine the majority of my mum's friends saying this. Literally. Like, this is not a far-fetched thing. And again, it's only kind of putting value in the marginalization that affects you. Yes. Right? And your kid who's a straight white male that you're really worried about feeling alienated from the culture as you're speaking to a person of colour. I just think there is that disconnect that still exists just in that generation. Totally so wrapped in your own cocoon that mm. you can't even see how what you're saying is so kind of fucked up. Exactly. And, and then we have Mark. Now, Mark is the epitome of the patriarchy. So this is, this is interesting because he's well-intentioned. He's very well-intentioned yeah. and he's good-natured. Like a nice guy. He's, he's a nice guy. He's a nice he's white nice guy. guy. Um, but he really needs to feel respected. Like he needs to feel like the protector. And, and he did say that, you know, he feels emascul- emasculated by not making as much money as his wife. Um, and then he felt emasculated when he found out his dad was gay. And then when he was the one that took out Kai or when their room was being robbed mm. and he really was seen as the protector, the whole narrative like switched and, and you could just see like that's how the patriarchy works. Like they just want to be the alpha and then no, in no matter what context they become the alpha, like in this case, Kai was fucking going to go to jail and... He didn't even care. He didn't even take time to learn about the context. Mm-hmm. He was just like, yes, I punched him out. I am now the protector. I'm the best. And it's kind of like, he's he's not really recognizing his white privilege, but um, he's almost victim to the patriarchy, even though he represents the patriarchy in a sense, because he obviously grew up with this really macho or macho seeming dad, and mm. he was never good enough, you know, for his kind of... He was never good enough for this really masculine guy that he really, really idolized. Mm. And then the whole story of him is like him yearning for that same respect that he had towards his father. Mm -hmm. And then that like breakdown of his sort of fictionalized childhood that he had in his head that wasn't really the case because his dad wasn't the man that he he thought he was. And then wanting... Quinn to admire him in the same way. I know. But uh, he wasn't ever trying to actually understand Quinn or what Quinn wanted. Exactly. That was one thing that I will probably get into when we talk about Quinn. But it's like, he is... And this is so deep because he's trying to make himself feel good by telling Quinn all these things and never once asking Quinn anything, which is like what we see a lot of white people doing to people of colour. They're trying to make themselves feel lighter and like they're helping by saying all these things, but never once asking the other person. Yes. So, and, and that's the same with the patriarchy. I think you're so right that he is representative of the patriarchy and he's also a victim of it and he can't see it. No, absolutely. I also think, um, and this is something I read as well, but I agree with, he feels very victimized by progressive attitudes. Like when they're watching the Hawaiian dancing and Paula quite rightly takes issue with it and and says, you know, 
they shouldn't have to be performing for us. Like, this is their land. And then Mark says, obviously imperialism was bad, but it's humanity. Welcome to history. Welcome to America. And then Nicole says, I think it's just a way for them to honour their culture. And they seem to be having a really good time. I'm sorry. It just White privilege, the patriarchy, and all the disconnects. Like, the quotes. Everywhere. It's just sickening. So sickening because it's so, so, so relatable. So, It's so so true. Like, I've watched Fire Dancing in Fiji. Quite literally. I was sitting there thinking, holy fuck, I was 10 and I've seen this. And my family, I mean, we're not on Mossbarker level, but, like, we've done this exact thing. I feel like it's such a white thing to go on these family holidays. And my family would go on family holidays all <laughs> so the time. Bad. And this is just, like, throwing it in our faces, the blatancy of sort of the fucked up nature of what we do. What we do. As a society and what we are part of. And and I wonder if our parents were to watch it, if they would recognize this. Like, I like, love my parents so much. Same. Deeply. <laughs> so much, deeply. And they're a fantastic people. But I really think if they watched this, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able it. to ingest it. No, I don't think they would see themselves reflected as we're seeing ourselves reflected. And that's a beautiful part of empathy of our, like, Gen Z culture. Yes. You might call us snowflakes, but... It's empathy, and we're seeing ourselves on screen, and then we want to change it. We're not, like, putting up the shield and saying, that's not us. Yeah, that's totally. not me. Because we're trying to break down what we have been doing in the past, and now with this new information. It's not even fucking new information. Yeah. We're just suddenly now opening our eyes. Like, let's change our behavior, eh? Yeah. No, oh. I know. So so let's get into Paula, Olivia, and Kai. So Paula and Olivia are supposedly best friends. And Paula, who's a person of colour, has come on holiday with the family. Which is interesting in itself because I wasn't going to get into this yet, but I am. The only person of colour that's a main character has been brought there or enabled by a white family. Mm-hmm. So it's just so reflective of like... Yes, you can have a seat at the table, but you've got here, don't you forget, you've got here by a white person letting you get here. Absolutely, and you should feel so thankful and so grateful that you've been allowed here. I know, and it's so it's so intentional. Like, Absolutely. Mike White, like, this is very intentional, and we will get to this later, I keep saying that, but the critiques of the show, I think, are also the point. Like, mm-hmm. having all of these, like... Um, you didn't have that many Hawaiians as main characters or whatever. It's like, that's the point because that's, that's point. real life. Yeah. They get treated as the background and we don't see context to them and and that's real life. And yeah. I think it was very intentional. So Olivia and Paula's friendship is quite unique. Uh, it was bordering on sexual and and I really felt that and I went through and I read some interviews and both the actresses that played um, Olivia and Paula said watching it back they see it but Mm -hmm. it wasn't intentional like the sexual tension or chemistry or jealousy or whatever we're seeing there wasn't intentional but when they watch when they've watched White Lotus back yeah because I remember when when we were watching it and you were like oh is she in love with Paula yeah Yeah. do you think that that's because it has been created by a guy and Mm. just like I don't know, the understanding of girl-to-girl friendships. Like, there's always that sort of lens yeah. of sexuality put on it by men. Yeah. But but I don't know. I mean, it could be. I mean, there's a question about the male gaze. That could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> so Paula then sparks a relationship with Kai, a Hawaiian boy who works at the resort. 
and Olivia tries to steal him. So Paula initially keeps him secret. Actually, she tries to keep him secret the whole time. Olivia finds out. Mm -hmm. She tries to steal him. She's done this with one of Paula's previous boyfriends. And this is where Paula kind of realizes that Olivia is willing to do whatever it takes to always have more than Paula. Even though by nature of her place in society, Olivia already does. She still needs to feel like she has more. And that is kind of the last straw for Paula. So after hearing Kai's story about how the government illegally took his family's land in order to build the White Lotus Hotel and he now performs traditional dances for the white guests to afford to live on his land, which is not something that's fictionalized. This is a very true part of the storyline and for Hawaiian people. Paula gives Kai the code to the safe in the Moss Barker's hotel room and tells him to go and steal some $70,000 bracelets. painful, isn't it? Yeah, and he gets caught. And Paula doesn't even go and try to stop this all from happening when she realizes that Nicole and Mark are going back to the hotel room. This is like a little nod to Paula's privilege even being in that situation in that she thinks she's trying to help Kai. She can't see that he's going to have dire, dire consequences and she doesn't do anything to stop it and she doesn't actually have any consequences at the end of it. Yeah, like the naivety of the whole thing because she just can't even comprehend the actual repercussions that could happen to Kai because he doesn't have that blanket that she actually still has. Exactly. And then it's interesting, we don't see Kai again after... He's trying after he's caught trying to steal um, the bracelet, and I think again that's very intentional because as white people, when something bad happens, it's often just othered. It's like just cut from our cut from our lives. It's separated from us, and that's what they did. They just as soon as he was no longer, even though he actually was relevant to the storyline, we would have liked to know what happened to Kai because we were invested in him. The way the world works is like he was just cut from the script, cut from the story. Absolutely. He was a character on the sideline. We could get in our plane and fly away. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's what they do at the end of the holiday. So Olivia finds out that it was Kai that broke in, had this big ordeal, like really scared the mum. The dad had a fight with him. Like it seems really dangerous. Olivia finds out that Paula sort of made it all happen. And then, um, Paula says that it might be a tiny little bit of payback for what Olivia and her family have taken from the planet. She says, I guess it's not stealing when you think that everything's already yours. Mm. Which this whole like to and fro is very interesting. And then Olivia responds, something awful might have happened, insinuating that her mother might have died or, you know, something bad might have happened. And then Paula says, something awful did happen. And I think she's meaning, like, Kai's life is ruined now. And, and and it's just become this, like, anecdote for the dad to tell about how he was the protector. It's nothing more than a funny story that happened on the white privileged holiday. But for Kai, his life is over. I know. And the fact that Olivia can't even see that something awful has happened. I know. Like, it's not even choosing to ignore it, right? It's just doesn't exist in her consciousness it doesn't exist in their narrative yes and then there's this whole other like power dynamic now because olivia knows that paula has set this all up so now if paula wasn't already indebted to olivia for taking her on holiday and being her you know rich white middle class friend she's indebted because olivia knows too much olivia could put paula in jail like there's just a whole other power so many power like the power dynamic between olivia and paula is very very interesting and just like so painful to watch and it just is 
awful that that's the way it ended. I know. I mean, obviously, for a good reason. Um, mm. For Mike White's sort of, you know, what he's trying to portray. But fuck, that oh, no. whole thing, I think that was the worst bit. Oh, I know. That was just like tension built up in the body. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, if it's bad for us watching it, imagine how bad it is for Kai living it, and then like people like Kai in real life. And as soon it. as Paula had that idea for Kai to steal the bracelet, blah, 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 we already knew exactly what was going to happen because mm. who has the power in this mm. circumstance? Exactly. The white people, they're always going to come out on top. And I think the fact that she thought that this was a good idea just shows her, I mean, we've already sort of spoken about it, but her removal yes. from his situation, she was really trying to be an ally to him. And we see this in Olivia as well. Yeah. But she couldn't be an ally to him because she hasn't been in his shoes. Just like Olivia is trying to be the perfect ally to people of color, like Paula, but she is incapable of empathizing because she's not been in those shoes. And she takes it upon herself to sort of lecture her family and lecture other people while not really being able to see that she's just like her family. Right? But, like, did this... Okay, obviously Olivia is a pretty awful character and no one wants to see themselves in Olivia. But I did see myself in, like, her... Trying to school her family at dinner? Totally, at dinner. Like, I I remember my dinner time conversations of me getting all high and mighty about some sort of social inequality Mm. issue and being like to my parents, you just don't get it, you just don't get Mm. it. And it's like, I don't know... It just was painful it to, was. to see it reflected in a character like Olivia. And but you have the same name. <laughs> yeah, what I think it is. The principle's the same. What I think it is, Liv, is because I'm all for those conversations and I have them all the time. And I feel like when we were younger, we were saying it because we'd learnt it. Whereas what it is now is making sure you walk the walk if you talk the talk. Mm. So, like, making sure that you're not really lecturing people on it you're recognizing it and you're changing your behavior whereas olivia reverted straight back into her family's comfort like you know as soon as um she realized like paula had tried to set her family up she really just reverted straight back into Mm -hmm. like oh well at the end of the day my family's still rich we're fine we're on holiday like i don't have to worry and there was that really interesting scene where i think paula sat at the table and she's seeing them all get along for the first time and it was you almost felt happy that they were all getting along but then Mm. you were like no this is so fucked up because of what's brought them together i know i know it's so fucked up and and you could just tell paula was a great like vehicle i reckon super interesting character i felt so sorry for Paula because she was in this liminal space in between these two worlds right where she didn't fit in Mm -hmm. in either places and I know that a lot of people of color have said how they don't fit into either of like the two binary societies yes that they're sort of meant to fit into and I think she just epitomized this how like she was on holiday with her best friend who happens to be a white privileged woman but she's also trying to connect with Kai, who she probably feels like she relates to on a deeper level because they share the same sort of struggles, but but then they don't. And they so, don't, yeah, she's yeah. trying to f- figure out where she lands in the world. And it's really hard to do when you have a little bit of privilege, but you're also from a really marginalised group. Like, that we, that must, that fuck must with be your head. fucking so hard. And mm-hmm. I think she portrayed that beautifully. Yeah. Um. But, I mean, that whole situation was just tense. And then we have Quinn. Now, Quinn's my favorite character. 
He's my favorite character, like in terms of the white people. I think Belinda was definitely my favorite. Belinda's character a gem. Yeah, yeah, Belinda and Quinn love them. But I do find lots interesting about Quinn. He, I don't know if it's because I grew up with three brothers and I sort of see bits of each of my brothers and the way that Olivia treats Quinn, I could definitely be not on that level, but a bit like that. You're just quite dominating and you're like, no, go sleep over there. Because you were the older sister, Mm. right? I mean, except for your oldest brother, but Yes, I saw a lot of that and I really, fuck, I empathized with Quinn so much and like when you have your friends around like um Olivia had Paula and they just sort of boss him around you know oh my god like yeah yeah. it was always the other way for me because I was the youngest yeah 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 Yeah. totally get it so Quinn is as we just said the younger brother of Olivia and when he arrives he is very much sort of addicted to technology and to porn you know just looking for those little bursts of dopamine to get him through the day escapism he doesn't really know what he's living for right he couldn't care fucking less that he's at a resort in Hawaii. but And he's made to sleep in the little kitchenette, which is hilarious. And then he's made to sleep on the beach at Olivia's request. Not even request, at her fucking direction. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout the series, we see his phone actually break because it's drenched as he's sleeping on the beach. Um, And then he really starts to sort of see the world, which does sound very cliche, but it is really interesting because it comes, you know, like he sees some dolphins and he starts scuba diving with his dad. And then like his dad, as we talked about, starts telling him way too much about his sex life in order to try and get close to him. But like, as we said, this is just the patriarchy thing again. Like the dad never asked Quinn about him he just sort of offloads his own shit onto Quinn to feel better totally to like just to feel like he's doing something I guess so Quinn it's so ironic yeah I know I just, like, it's just all very ironic and very true so self-centered so self-centered so um Quinn sort of represents if we're talking about white privilege Quinn is sort of like representing that desire to escape it you know he's mm-hmm. the young one he's the youngest one that's like I'm not the the girl boss feminist. Like, I'm not the fake ally. I'm the one that's going to escape this thing. I'm the one that wants to connect. Yes. But from a very white and privileged standpoint. Always. Again, it's just not quite there. White people can't, like, ever fully feel the way that people that we're often fucking over feel. So Quinn wanting to escape the system, like, the, the family that he lives in and the world that he lives in and stay in Hawaii... Is like when people go to wellness retreats and they discover themselves and then they like come back and they want to change the system and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, like people that go off to wellness retreats are often white people. You have to have enough money to go to them. Like it's a very privileged way of wanting to better society. Absolutely. And And then taking parts from other cultures and religions and to it's all to make to yourself feel better. Themselves, yeah. It's like you're paying to make yourself feel better when you could be paying to help the people that can't afford to go to these fucking wellness retreats. And then in turn, you'll probably feel better about yourself, which is the ironic thing. It's so ironic. So I sort of saw Quinn. Quinn was... <laughs> he's trying his best, right? He's young. He can't see that he's still... Use, he doesn't have to worry about money, so he thinks he can just live there. And like, it's very privileged to just take from this culture what you want the relaxation the connection and not like he probably wouldn't have any idea about the struggles of the hawaiian people that have had their land taken or whatever he just feels better there so he wants to stay so he's trying to reject the world around him but it's kind of the opposite because 
he's only ever known Hawaii as a resort when it's not really a resort. He's also, like, he's trying to do it for freedom from um, his world at home and his Mm -hmm. phone and technology and all that. But, like, it's not him that needs the freedom. Like, it's not him that deserves the freedom. freedom. It's just all very, very ironic. I know. But then, okay, so with Quinn... He gets to the airport, he turns around, he goes back, he wants to live in Hawaii forever. It's a better place for him. For him. He feels it's a better place for him, and he wants to get out of the system that he hates, which is family living and perpetuate. A lot of people obviously shit on Quinn for wanting to do this. There's issues with wanting to do this, and plus he's 16, it's not going to work. But it's also like... He's also trying to do something to break out of the system that fucking sucks. And it just always comes back to, like, do we want people to try imperfectly, like, do something? And then, and then sh- like, are we going to shit on them for that? Or would we rather they all just do nothing? Would we rather Quinn just go home with his family and go back to his phone and his porn and forget what he learned in Hawaii and not want to change the system? Absolutely. It's so complicated. I think you and I always err on the side of do something. Do something. Do fucking something, right? Because otherwise it's just fucking depressing. Yes. Like, the irony is we... Us white people go to these cultures to get something that we're not getting from our own culture because we're not valuing the right things exactly. for true like well-being and mm-hmm. happiness. And obviously we want to do something about that, going about it in the totally wrong way. But it is sad that like we don't have anything of our own to like cling onto in that sense. And it's quite a confronting it's very feeling. It's because it's like, okay, do then I just have to subscribe to what white people do now in the Western way of living, which I fundamentally think is pretty fucked up. Hmm. Or do I try and do, do, something, try and do something and then get cancelled or shed on for it? For potentially appropriating someone else's culture, but it it's a it's a messy space. Yeah. But the good thing is there are people to help you navigate navigate that space. Like if I feel like if Quinn were to go back to his usual life, but then really engage with like native Hawaiian people and try and change things from within the system, right? Because it's yeah. really hard to do it from outside. But he's sixteen. Like there are ways. It's not like hopeless. It's not a hopeless thing as long as we don't like shit on everyone who tries. Totally. I think we are like going down this path and meeting some dead ends and stuff and having to retract, like, but we are trying to find a way. Mm. And it's just giving people grace. Like, Quinn, I would give the most grace out of all the characters, um, and he's got the most potential to do good. He's also, like, the only character at the end of it that had changed. Mm. Like, he's the only one Mm. that That had fundamentally fundamentally changed. changed. So while, yes, he can't escape to Hawaii and just sort of almost appropriate their culture and only see the beauty, he at least was sort of doing something. Yeah. Now, Liv, before we get into all the other storylines and the other characters, I think we should hear from today's sponsor. I think that's a good idea, Luce. So being in lockdown in Auckland, we literally have all the time in the world just to watch TV. Well, that's what it feels like. I found my new favourite show, Succession, on Neon. Yes, oh my god, you've said so much about Succession. Also, we absolutely devoured that season of White Lotus, remember Liz? That does not even feel like it was in lockdown, but yes, we did. 
In case you couldn't tell, Neon is our favorite New Zealand-based streaming service. And the best part is, you can get a 14-day free trial to test it out. And absolutely none of this would be possible without Neon. They let us chat about White Lotus as part of our job, which is literally the best fucking thing ever. It actually is. Shot Neon. It's Neon. Oh, God, Luce, that was fantastic. A fantastic rundown of the... What What was her name? The, the Mossbucker family. Mossbucker family. Um, my first character that we're going to go into is the hotel manager, and his name's Armand. I didn't even know that his name was Armand. I'm just, in my yeah. head, he's the hotel manager. Mm-hmm. But he's played by Murray Bartlett, and is the manager of the White Lotus Hotel. So we are introduced to him when he's welcoming all of the rich people off of the boat. Um, at this point in time, he tells Lani, which is his new staff member, that then goes to give birth, if anyone remembers her, mm. because that just Again, happens. A minor character, because... Disposable. Disposable, absolutely. But he tells Lani that the goal of their work is to, quote, disappear behind our masks as pleasant, interchangeable helpers. The goal is to create for the guests an overall impression of vagueness that can be very satisfying. I think this really just sets the tone for the entire yeah, like see that on series. our land or your land, if you're talking about Lani, but make yourself as muted as possible. Yeah, it's be generic, didn't you say? Like, yeah, like when he first said that, I was sort of like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Same, but then I loved him. Yeah, same. I totally got the wrong impression from that, but then later on in that scene, we almost foreshadowed his sort of unraveling when he continues to say that. They get everything they want, but they don't even know what they want or what day it is or where they are or who they are or what the fuck is going on. Mm. And I thought that was like a really interesting, just sudden turn. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're no longer thinking that he's this guy that's like on their side Mm. and is like, make yourself invisible because these are the important people. It's like, make yourself invisible because they're so sad that they won't even be able to see your specialness. Literally. That's exactly what it's like. And and I think he's like a babysitter, right, for, for them. Because he they're all fucking children. They yeah. are all such children. And Absolute, he's like babysitter. Yes, he's like the childminder, right? It's, oh, he, I think, has the worst job in the world. I think so too. After working in a hospo for what? Only like, well, every summer for like three or four years. But... I also think he's interesting. Obviously, he's interesting. Mm. Mike White wouldn't put him there if he wasn't. But he is a white person Mm -hmm. serving all these other white people, but managing a lot of Hawaiian people. And so he, again, is on this cusp of like, why am I not one of you? Like, why why is he not a guest? Why has he not made it? And do you think that they made him gay? Because of this. Like, I really think that Mike White sort of, he goes into every area of marginalization. Well, maybe not every area, but a lot of areas Mm. of marginalization. And I think the one thing that sets Armand apart from the rest of the white people in the Mm. show is his sexuality. Totally. And the way that we degrade people that are different. Yeah. Not even, you know, it's so fucking heteronormative, this Mm -hmm. whole show. And that's, you know, obviously what's meant to be portrayed. But it's just very confronting to see that so blatantly that that literally in the hierarchy steps him down yeah. a notch. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like here with the hotel manager, we're just seeing a man who's at the end of his tether. Mm-hmm. He's really losing grip on this whole idea of 
control and you know his job is to deliver the fantasy of the holiday yeah and he is five years sober he's obviously like got himself together he's been like killing it right at his job whatever he seems to be totally put together as a person but we we meet him at this point of unraveling Mm. and I find this really interesting with a lot of characters we meet them after their traumas happened almost or like we either meet them after or before. Or before, like at this transitionary point yeah. where we don't know their backstory. Yeah. But yeah, his main storyline is the feud between himself and Shane, who's the very, very oh. rich white Polonic wearing absolute asshole of a man. Worst character I've actually ever come across. Yeah, actually vomit worthy. Mm. And um, the dispute is all about the pineapple suite. So Shane has not received the room that his mother has paid for. And <laughs> Basically, yeah, and and throughout the six episodes, it's basically the feud between them, and it's almost like Armand has met the man he can't please, mm. and and it's his unraveling, it's and his, then his demise. It's his demise, and this is where he then, you know, lets go and goes back to the alcohol, goes back to the drugs. Mm. Um, we see him just yeah, totally sort of fall apart but at the same time get empowered Mm. it's very interesting it's like he's now rejecting his role yeah but in doing so he's sort of letting himself go to shit at the same time because he's rejecting it while he's still in it he's not like oh i'm gonna quit then i'm gonna fucking reject all of this it's like he's sort of yeah still meant to be doing his job i also find it interesting because there is a level i think and i love the hotel manager but i think i have to point this out of like the patriarchy or of the white male privilege a little bit in terms of he never once admits that, yeah, he double booked the room. Totally. Like, like it was his bad. They are both yeah. stubborn as fuck. And obviously he's a much more likable character than Shane. Totally. But no, that's the I thing know. he never once says. Because if you do go to a hotel and they do double book yeah. the room, usually it's like, I'm so sorry. Yes. But he never once does that. So I just found that like a little bit interesting man to man. Yeah, but then it's so interesting because it's like, oh my fucking God, that's so unimportant. Like I think Mike White must have put that in to be like, because we've probably been in the position where we haven't received what we've paid for or something. And we feel like it's our right to put our hand up and be like, because I've given you my money, I deserve exactly what I paid for. And that is something that we've never questioned. Yeah, it's all just a construct, right? It's all a construct. Like, why do you actually deserve the pineapple suite? Even though your mum's paid paid for for it. it, But it's like... And he kept going, your mum paid for it. Being like, bro, this isn't even your money. Why do you care so much? Exactly. And he's been given probably just as nice of a room. But it's the principle of not getting what he paid for. I just think money is so core mm. at that whole feud and he keeps asking for a, for an upgrade and there obviously isn't one because he's, he's in the second best room yes and then um Armin's like do you want another toilet like that's yeah. his, that's what i can give you and that's actually kind of foreshadowing toilets because of the dump that happens yeah. at the end there I we go yeah symbolism or motif or whatever the Absolutely. smart word is <laughs> <laughs> whatever the english term is yeah so that is sort of what we focus on with Almond. Mm. Almond? Almond. Almond. <laughs> also, do you think our English teachers would be fucking proud listening to this? I hope eh? so. Mr. Morrow? Yeah. <laughs> if you're out listening. listening. Storm Simpson, if you're listening. 
Oh my goodness, they they served us well. But yeah, so Armand is actually the person that ends up getting killed. Mm. And I think we sort of forget that this whole series is based on someone... Like, there is a plot? Yeah, there's a plot. Like, I don't even know if we've mentioned this at all. No, there is a plot. At the start, we find out that someone's died at the hotel. Yeah, it's a very, like, big little lies-esque sort of plot. Um, So, yeah, he is the one that dies after taking a shit in (laughs) Shane's suitcase. I've never seen something like that on screen in my life. Neither, because it was a real turd. (laughs) Do you think, did he actually poo? It looks like... No, I'm not kidding. That... And him getting his ass eaten out, I don't think could have been, like, edited to yeah. do that. I think they were two very confronting scenes, and I don't really think they could have been faked. Honestly, I don't even I'm sure there's know. ways to fake it, but in my heart of hearts, I kind of want to believe they're real, because that's great TV. Totally. I'm sure there's a, there's an explainer out there or something, but... While he's on his drug fueled rampage, he... What's the word? He sort of grooms or sort of gets with... Yeah, he gets with Dylan, who's one of the staff members. Um, it's quite oh. ambiguous because you don't know if Dylan's into it. It's it's bordering on, like, him totally, you know, pa- the power play. Yeah. But also, yeah, Dylan just seems to not really give a fuck. And he's like, oh, well, you said I could have this shift off. But he yeah. also seems kind of up for it. I didn't know how yeah, to feel about that situation at all. It was very interesting. Very interesting situation. So, yeah, that was Armin, the hotel manager. He was definitely one of my favorite characters. Me too. I also think it's very not a hot take at all. But, like, at the end, when he does die, like, he dies and Shane has no consequences, like white That's privilege. Cool. If that was Kai, for example, even though it was self-defense because, like, there was a stranger shitting in your fucking, what is it, suitcase? Yeah. Like, even though it was self-defense, he was, Shane was met with a handshake, not with handcuffs. Like, the juxtaposition between Shane and Kai... Like, I know. and the crimes that they committed. Shane committed a murder and Kai committed theft. And not even. He like, didn't even get the bracelet. So, yeah. Police straight away on Kai's behalf. And then Kai fucking cut from the show and probably from society in jail. Yeah, absolutely. Shane handshake. It's anyway. fucked. And just like the fact that Shane accidentally killed him. Oh like, just the whole thing about that. Like, the whole, oh, I have no control over the hurt that I put on other people. Mm. God, Shane's the worst. Are we talking about them next? Yeah, so yeah, that brings us into yeah. Shane Patton and Rachel, well, I'm guessing her last name's Patton as well, yeah. because she married the fucking bastard. But mm. anyway, um, Rachel, who's played by Alexander, <laughs> Alexandra Didario, and Shane, who's played by Jake Lacey. So these two are like in their mid-30s, they're on their honeymoon. To be honest, this was the storyline that gave me the biggest it. Oh, Fuck yeah. Which was obviously the intention, but God, I hated Shane. And to be honest, at the end, a little bit Rachel. I know. And so basically the main storyline here was that Rachel seemed to actually hate Shane, Mm. um, but didn't have the confidence to sort of even realize her thoughts, let alone leave him. This was a majorly icky, like power dynamic between someone with obvious quite low self-esteem, low confidence with this guy that just thought the world owed him fucking everything. Mm. And I just, at first I really felt awful for Rachel and I thought that she'd gotten herself into a situation that she sort of was in too deep. She didn't know how to get herself out of. But 
I think she almost liked to be the victim self-consciously mm. and that's why she was sort of gravitating towards someone like Shane who was so self-entitled and would almost look after her. Also, her whole life she'd been scrambling for money and she'd been a journalist, someone who hadn't really made it big time. She hadn't had this amazing career, but she thought she was still like at the brink of it. She was going to crack through, Mm. but she sort of totally lost all her drive and motivation as soon as she was with Shane because he belittled her, but also it was like she was looking for the excuse to tell herself that she wasn't good enough. Mm. And I just found her really, really interesting because she started off as a genuine victim, but then became a very allowing Mm. victim. And I think to me, literally one of the most painful, besides from Kai, the most painful parts was when she did go back to him at the end of the airport. I just felt really upset same I agree with you I felt really bad for her at the start because it's like a textbook psychological abuser Shane is a textbook psychological abuser he belittled her told her she wasn't good at journalism he made her doubt herself completely so she made herself feel small and we know that when they feel small they gravitate towards someone who can look after them and so that on the surface level I was like that's why I felt bad But then when I was thinking about it more and more, I was thinking about how people, when they get into a system or they get into something that's comfortable and they have money, they would actually choose that, that comfort and that money and that security over not having comfort, money and security and being happy. Absolutely. And I think that that is one of the biggest themes throughout the entire series. I think you can sort of attest that statement to any of the characters um but i think here it was super blatant because the sort of economic inequality between the two characters was very was at the core of their storyline i think we see this though like in real life to like bring this sort of to us when people choose not to vote because something doesn't affect them, like, because they don't want to do the work and look at how the way they're living is impacting other people, like, because it doesn't affect you Mm. doesn't mean that you can just get comfortable with it. Like, Rachel staying with him is comfortable because it's easier than going and creating change. So I, I think it's like... Nothing's going to change in their marriage. Nothing's, like, she doesn't want to do that work. It's too hard and it's too scary and it's too uncomfortable. Yeah. But it's, it's like, classic. It's white people. If we don't go and do the work, which is scary and uncomfortable, we're not going to create any change. If, like, we were just to stay silent on issues that didn't affect us, well, fuck, we'd be silent on everything. Nothing would ever change if we chose to stay comfortable. And I really think that is what... Mike White wanted Mm. to do with Rachel is to show like that comfort does insecurity trumps everything even the pain you're inflicting on other people or you're inflicting on yourself on yourself and I think she was in this constant state of pain that she thought was too much Mm. but really at the end of the day it wasn't enough to yes yeah and it's like to change her own behavior and to put confidence within herself she couldn't bring herself to Even make though the choice. Her life is so shitty with so, Shane, so but it's so shitty in comparison to what? Like, she's got all this money. Right? She knows she's got a safety blanket her whole life. And then she's probably thinking, 
oh, well, I can put up with this level of shitty because it's still better than all these other people's level of shitty. Exactly, which is actually so ironic because I feel like her level of shitty was the worst shittiness ever. Like, I feel like what she is allowing to happen to herself is literally, like, she's letting herself die, Mm. basically. Like, uh, her inner self. Mm. um, And totally being swept away by everything that he wants and his ideals of life. But at the end of the day, that is her choice. And she has to put... It's like she doesn't even have enough value in herself to put value into the fact that she could change her situation. And I think that that's quite a scary place to be. And it was scary to watch. Yeah. I really disliked Rachel at the end of it. I was just like, you are choosing money and comfort over your own happiness and put that on a bigger scale. Like, fucking the rich white people constantly put their money. Like, why do we have billionaires? You know, like, they could be putting their money into changing other people's happiness. Yeah. I felt very, like, I had very complicated feelings towards it because I was like, you know, if you have been broken down that much... Like, how are you expected to have the strength to leave? But it was because she actually did, because she showed us that she did. She was at that brink of leaving him and she'd done all the hard yards and all she literally had to do was get on a plane now and and go. Mm. But she, it's almost like she'd done it, but then she retracted it because she was too scared. Oh, now I'm out in the open. What am I going to do now? Let's I don't have money. <laughs> yeah, I don't have money. I don't have someone making decisions for me. Like... If I was in year 11, I'd write a paragraph on money count by happiness. Yeah. (laughs) But now I'm not year 11, I still kind of think that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and I think a strong theme here was also, like, the value being in her looks as well. Like, her being... Oh, he constantly was like, me and my hot wife. Yeah. Good morning, my hot wife. Literally, that was all she felt like she had value in in the relationship. And I feel like there were moments also where she was trying to assert her control sexually like she was trying to be like i'm not gonna have sex with you because that was the only power Mm. she had in the relationship but then it was so ironic because when he was sort of like okay i don't want to have sex with you then either then she got really insecure because that was her value as a person like who was she if he didn't want to have sex with her so like yeah it was a very (sighs) weird Horrible storyline. Horrible, horrible storyline. And the mum came. The mum that paid for the pineapple sweet came. Yes. And then what'd she say? She was like, at one point, oh, the pineapples are lousy. Or look at the lousy pineapples or something. And I was like, oh, your fucking son is about to kill a guy over the pineapple sweet. And you couldn't give Kia less. Like, classic. Right? Y'all couldn't Kia less. And it's the end of someone's life. Yes. And the mum says to Rachel, like, you've won like you've won against all those other beautiful girls like what what do you have to be unhappy about you've won my son that's yuck that's fucking i don't even have a deep thought about that because that was very overtly just gross yeah absolutely so yeah that was that storyline and i think done and dusted um tanya is the last of our storylines so tanya was played by jennifer coolidge who did an impeccable job she did a great job Mm -hmm. at acting this character my least favorite character to watch every time she came on screen i felt sort of bored yeah it's just because my own interests i don't think i was gravitating towards her yeah no totally fair enough i think she was quite similar to the characters that jennifer often plays but she i read somewhere that it was like she had more of a backstory and an inner inner life than what 
than those characters that mm-hmm. she does usually play. But I found that true as to all the characters in this TV show. I felt like we got a lot more inner life from Tanya than we did from anyone else. Mm. Um, but I think that that's because her inner life was almost like bursting at the seams because she needed someone to listen to it. And also because she was the only character that came on her own. So all she she, on, she yes. had to talk to other people about her life. Totally. She couldn't like, guess that people already knew it. No, yeah, she couldn't assume that, right? Mm. That's so interesting. Yeah, so Tanya is definitely like the most fragile mm. of... I wrote off the islanders. <laughs> Love Island. Yeah, literally. Our worlds are colliding. Oh my god. So Tanya comes to the island to scatter her mother's ashes, but her journey then becomes seemingly a holistic one when um, she meets Belinda, who's played by Natasha Rothwell and is the most like empathetic character I think you'll ever meet. Um, but yeah, the whole back story to Tanya is how cruel her mother was to her. And the lasting effects of that on her self-esteem. Mm. And that even in death, her mother still haunts her, basically. Then she gets fixated on her wellness journey to sort of get rid of her mother and her subconscious. Yes. Or whatever it is. And she really sort of codependently latches on to Belinda to help her do this. Um, this was a really painful storyline as well in terms of... Tanya offers to fund Belinda's own wellness business, but then as soon as she meets a guy, which then sort of fills that void within her, she totally disregards what she'd said to Belinda and what she'd promised Belinda. And it was a whole nother thing of like, oh, now I'm happy. I don't like, Mm. I was only doing this to make myself feel better about myself, but now I'm feeling good. I don't need to help you out anymore. Yeah. And just like, money sort of having power and that's at its most basic level i think like tanya her intentions were good but she reminded me so much of the mums in like the help you know they find people of color who are working for them and they make them their friends but only on their terms absolutely and the person who is beneath them because they are beneath them because they're employed by them, just like Belinda was when Tanya was paying for massages and stuff. Those people don't have any say in the relationship. It's the white person controlling the whole relationship, and when they're done with it, they're done with it. Like, when she doesn't want to invest in her business anymore, she doesn't invest. When she doesn't want to be a friend anymore, she's not her friend. It's like, it's not a proper friendship. And it reminded me so much of the help. It just, it made me feel... So sad for Belinda, who just constantly is serving these people that do not give a fuck about them when it's not on their terms. Absolutely. It's like Tanya had such low self-esteem that she needed to make herself feel good by, like, befriending Belinda because she knew economically that she was so far above her that that's the only time that she felt like she had value. Mm. And she says to Belinda, you know, I can't, I can't. I can't go into business with you because I'm sick of having transactional relationships. And she then goes to give Belinda a whole wad of money. Yeah. Which kind of cancels out her point entirely. Yeah, I found Tanya... At first, I felt sorry for her. And I did sort of, like, connect with her on a level because she was so ridiculously open about sort of her trauma. And obviously, what had happened to her was really awful. Mm. And I think a lot of people can relate to that Mm. um on some level but it was like this was a typical 
example to me of someone feeling really low and therefore just getting so self-absorbed because of how low they are yeah. that they can't see anything happening in anyone yeah. else's life. And that their actions aren't actually good. Like, they're making someone who's serving you into your friend isn't helping them. No. Like, that's for you. Yeah. And you can't see that because you think, oh, I have a friend. Or, like, this is making me feel better. But it's all like, me, me, me. And, like, she's not badly intentioned. She's just fucked up. Yeah, it's it's also strange because Tanya's like very weirdly self-aware of how codependent mm. she is and I think we see this when she does meet that guy and then there's that scene where they're about to have sex and then she sort of has this weird like crying fit. Yeah. Um and he still wants to have sex with her. Yeah. Um but she's like screaming I'm so dependent that it pushes people away, but she's not even including Belinda in that. I know. It's like she's it's seeing not- her as Lower than her, like, not even in her class of people. And class is probably the perfect word to use there. Like, she doesn't see Belinda as a person. Even though they're supposedly friends, Belinda is someone that serves her and works for her. She is not, like you said, she's not on her playing field in, in Tanya's eyes. Yeah, that whole thing was pretty heartbreaking. And then Rachel also using Belinda to talk about her marriage too, and Belinda just, like, had enough. Yeah, and that was so interesting because it was like Rachel needed the validation of someone else to tell her that what... to tell her to leave Shane. Mm. And because she couldn't do that, she went back to Shane. Yeah, I know. That was a whole very weird thing, and it's like, yeah, stop using Belinda. Belinda was just constantly serving people because... That's her job. Like, at the end of the day, Belinda was the only one out of everyone. Like, even Armand died so he can go back to work. She was, like, the only one that when the when all these fucked up people left, Belinda went straight back to day one and had to put on her smile and greet all the new guests coming in. Like, nothing changes for Belinda. All these other people can come. They can have these epiphanies or they can, you know, their relationships can fall apart. Then they can leave. You know, they're gone. Belinda is still there serving the next privileged white person that comes to her because that is the system. That's not being able to escape the system. She can't. Absolutely. It's she, at the hands of white She doesn't people. have the privilege to think about her own shit. Yeah. She has to think about everyone else's to fucking survive. It's confronting. It's so It's so confronting and it's also like interesting because she's a supporting character but we get close enough to see what we do to the supporting characters in our lives. And it's almost like she was the only character that truly changed. Yeah. Because at the end, she was like, fuck you all, I've had enough. But then she was, she's the one, her mind changed. Yeah, her mind changed, changed, but her situation didn't. Her situation didn't, whereas the other people's, their situation could change easily because of the money that they've got, but their minds never will because they're not, they're not willing to look into themselves that far. Exactly. Yeah, what a great breakthrough. That was a lot. I feel like I've actually covered a lot of my, like, big takeaways. Obviously, I think for both of us that they would all rather be unhappy with money Mm -hmm. than happy without money is, like, one of the main things. It's just so ironic how our brains are wired to almost, like, sabotage ourselves. Yeah. In that sense. Like, they're on holiday, right? Only people with money can go on holiday. They're meant to be enjoying themselves. They are all having the shittest time ever. 
but they would rather be able to go on holiday and have the shittest time ever than be sitting at home really happy but not having enough money to go on holiday. Fuck yeah, or to be the ones serving the people on holiday. That's their worst nightmare. They probably couldn't imagine the people serving them being happy. Yeah. Like, how can you do this job and be happy? It's like, well, with guests like you, they fucking can't. But I think, yeah, money, money and unhappiness, they chose over no money and happiness. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, I think one of my biggest takeaways was like it made me feel really embarrassed to be white which is actually a really narcissistic response to the TV show but I think that's what Mike White was sort of banking on that his audience being as like self-involved as the characters to see themselves reflected on screen right so it's like the only way the show could have its true effect Mm. was because like because I, we're all self-obsessed. Yeah, I'm self-obsessed, so I see myself in the characters, and therefore I learn these really awful things about myself and the way that I've potentially lived my life in the past, or the way that the world I live in, what it values and prioritizes. Mm. Like, you know, if we weren't that self-involved to see ourselves in everything that we see, it wouldn't work as well, because That's it wouldn't such be as confronting. A good point. And I think it's really, like... The fact that we're self-obsessed means that then hopefully we can learn from this and change. And so change, it's like yeah. Mike White, if this was his intention of us being super self-obsessed, was obviously he had like a timeline. His end goal was for us to change because we're self-obsessed, because we've watched the show. Like Absolutely. Like, yeah. he has... <laughs> He's such faith in our self-obsession yeah. that the show works. And it's because he's one of us, so he's yes. felt the self-obsession. he knows what it's He like. knows what it's like because he is the patriarchy and a white man. Yeah. I also think, obviously we've talked about it before, but the criticisms levied against this um, are the point. Now, there have been really, really fair criticisms about only having Hawaiian people as minor characters and appropriating Hawaiian designs and music. And I'm not here to say that they're not fair for you to feel that way and to have, because you absolutely are. I just do think that they're the point. Like, centering it around white people, making white people the main characters, and making Hawaiian music make the white people feel like their life is more beautiful and to make the show more beautiful, using Hawaiian designs to make the set look more beautiful. Like, Mm -hmm. It's what we do. It's like yeah. meant to be appropriating it so that hopefully again commentary we watch it's itself. satire. It's yeah. like so that we watch and we comment on it. And anyone that thinks that it's sort of a downfall of the show might just have to take one step further and be like, no, because the show's showing real life and that's what we do in real life. We take people's cultures And we use them to make ourselves feel good or to make things more beautiful. And what's kind of weird is that only people that really analyze this and want to take it on will see that, Mm. that that's the point. Mm. And then that's when that choice will really set in. And then that might be why some people loved The White Lotus and some people really hated it because the people that really hated it probably haven't thought this far about it. And and it's okay to make art for people that are going to look further into it. Totally. Like we have. And then I think... I think we should finish with this quote from Sophie Gilbert in The Atlantic. Every interaction in the series is an exchange of power, and even when people try their hardest to use that power in benevolent ways or to redistribute it, things go awry. 
Nobody cedes their privilege, Mark tells his wife and kids during a tense dinner debate. That's absurd. It goes against human nature. We're all just trying to win the game of life. And that's yeah, that's oh. from the white family. Yeah. Nobody cedes their privilege. Just, there's a lot. Especially not on the White Lotus. No, God, no. Team, if you have got thoughts about this, please come and see us on Shit You Should Care About on Instagram. Come to our Discord server, which is at the link in bio on Instagram. Read our newsletter every morning. It's fucking great, and we talk about shit like this every single weekday morning. Highlight of my life. Thank you for listening. Liv, thank you for being yes, here. thank you for being here. Also, I feel... I don't even know how I feel. I don't know if I feel worse after this whole conversation, but please do come in if mm. we've missed things. Mm. Like if there's any gaping holes in oh, what we sort of said. If there's holes in what we said, they better not be gaping because I feel like we covered so much. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. But yeah, if you see something that we didn't, please do come and tell us. Super interesting. This whole thing has been very interesting to research. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be here next week talking about what the fuck happened to Ed Sheeran. Very different. Very dinner. <laughs> but um, hopefully entertaining nonetheless. Yes. Love you guys.